So the last few weeks, for some of you who have come on the previous Monday nights, have been uh, talks in the um, domain of wisdom. On one night a couple weeks ago, we talked some about um, knowing and knowing for oneself and really investigating um, the spirit of one's own direct understanding, the one who knows. And last week talked about the um, reality of change and the discovery of uh, wisdom in the midst of change. And tonight I'd like to continue with this theme of dimensions of wisdom. Um, sometimes for people, um, you get wisdom, if you will, which in part tonight I'm going to equate with a kind of perspective on life, not being lost in life, but somehow having a broader, wiser, more spacious, more gracious perspective. Sometimes it comes from travel. I have a psychologist friend years ago who did a, a study of what had really transformed and opened people's consciousness. And traveling to really different cultures and times and places um, is, is one of the things that has done it. Because you step out of your ordinary habits and roles and identity and see something in a new way. Sometimes it's a brush with death, only because death is stalking you. Um, uh, does life become an unfathomable mystery, says Don Juan. If it weren't for the fact of death, things would be ordinary. But here we are, and then at some point we're not going to be here in this way. And of course, we don't really believe it. But you know, you can reflect on that yourself. <laughs> this from Susan Griffin a poem called Born into a World Knowing. This will happen. Oh God, we say, just give me a few more breaths and don't let it be terrible. Let it be soft, perhaps in someone's arms, perhaps tasting chocolate, <laughs> perhaps laughing or asking, is it over already? Or saying, not yet, not quite yet, not yet, the sky has at this moment turned another shade of blue, and see there a child still plays in the fresh cut grass. And so we come to the temple, or we come to meditation, to reconnect with another dimension of our life than the kind of ordinary way of doing and being, to find wisdom or a perspective how refreshing, the whinny of a pack horse unloaded of everything. It's an old Zen saying, and it really talks about meditation. Finally, you sit down and you just let things go in a certain way. And my experience, whether it's traveling, because Next week I'm going to go to the East Coast and I come back and then I go to Europe and teach in the Alps for a bit and come back. And, you know, in, in this culture, many of us travel a lot, even not traveling, um, is how, um, how different it is from one place to another and how different I can be. Um, and then I come back and I say, oh yeah, right, I live in this house and I have these roles to do. But if I'm away for, for a while, it's not really... Um, so natural or obvious. You know that experience? You go for a while, even you go for a vacation and you come back and you say, oh yeah, work, right? I have to do that again and how do I do all of that? As I've said, sometimes I'll sit on the airplane, people, you know, introduce themselves and say, you know, what do you do? And sometimes I'll say, well, I'm in sales, right? <laughs> just, you know, sometimes I say I'm in theater also. That's kind of, I think it's honest, but you know. But I come back um, and, and I think, okay, well, who am I now? What is this role that I have to fulfill? You know, you're pretending to be students and I'm pretending to sit up here and be the teacher. But it's just tentative, you know. We could easily switch places. Um, and it keeps changing that way because our experience is not one life. It is a succession of lives. In the Mayan mythology, every hour is a deity, is a god. And the Navajo teach their children that every morning when the sun comes up, it's a brand new sun. 
It's born each morning and lives for only one day, and in the evening it passes away never to return. The sun has only one day, they'll say to the children, so you must live this day in a beautiful way so the sun won't have wasted its precious shine. In Buddhist teachings, although there are all these teachings of many lives, which are the kind of cosmology that you may or may not believe and really isn't important because birth and death take place all the time, even though the many lives stuff is true, you don't have to believe it. It's all right, you'll see. You ain't. But anyway, um, each moment is a new birth, and each day is a new birth. I remember talking to Ramdas after his stroke five or six years ago, um, and it was maybe a year after, a year and a half, and he was still having a lot of trouble speaking and getting around at all. And then he went to do teaching. He did his first teaching gig after the stroke somewhere in the city, and someone took him there, and he got up in his wheelchair, and he tried to speak as best he could, and he came back. And I saw him that week afterward, and I said, how was it to be out teaching? said, I didn't like it. I said, why not? And he looked at me, and there was this kind of sadness in his face. And he said, because they want me to be Ramdas, and I'm not him anymore. And then as he's gone on to teach about it, he says, you know, I've had so many incarnations. I would the incarnation of the, you know, dutiful, um, son in college and the professor at Harvard and then of course getting kicked out and going to India and uh, oh no before that c getting kicked out and becoming the LSD um, <laughs> you know guru of the country for a while and then going to India and becoming the other kind of guru with the sandals and beads and Baba Ram Das and so forth and after that dropping that uh, mostly and becoming the Seva Foundation founder and building eye hospitals and um, you know, uh, um, all kinds of support and development aid in uh, every place from Guatemala to Indian reservations to India and Africa and all this great service or seva. Um, and then, um, you know, doing a whole period of working with hospice and death and dying. He said, each of these has felt like an incarnation. And now in my driveway, he said, there was, there's my old you know, stick shift sports car in the closet is my cello and golf clubs. And if I think I can't play golf anymore, I really suffer. I can't play my cello anymore, it's so sad. But that's not me. That was somebody else. And now I'm born again into this disabled body. And this is my new life. And this is what you get. You have to die and be born again and again and take the curriculum, basically, whatever is offered. This is the new class. So who are we? You know, are we the roles that we play? Or is there some deeper truth of who we are? I remember at the end of one of our three-month retreats that we've had on the East Coast at our center in Massachusetts for the last 30 years, one year, um, the last week, we had different visiting teachers come in. And Kusan, the great uh, Korean Zen master from Nine Mountains Monastery, came in with his Zen staff and looked out at these people who just spent three months sitting and walking in silence, peered at them for a while, and said, someone explained to him what they were doing. He said, so you sit and walk, pay attention to the breath and mindfulness of everything. He said, oh, this is no good. Wrong practice. You know, this, oh my God. Already everyone is in shock, you know. <laughs> oh, I bet on the wrong horse or whatever, you know. <laughs> and then he picked up his staff and he looked very fierce the way his end master does and he pounded his staff and says, only this. What is this? What is this? And this was his, his whole teaching. What is this? To be alive, to be in a body. What is this life? This, only, only this is your meditation. And of course, they were all like sitting in shock or <laughs> took three more months to f kind of come to terms with his visit. <laughs> but in fact, it was the same teaching. It was the same practice as, as they had been doing. Who am I really? What is this 
mystery of our identity. O nobly born, it says in the Buddhist text, do not forget who you really are. Or there's that beautiful story um, in India, the, the kind of Hindu story where the baby's in the womb and sings, oh, do not let me forget who I really am. And then the song changes right after birth to, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. <laughs> but who are we that come into this remarkable incarnation with the little fingers in the end that we take, you know, it takes a year or two to learn how to grab things or some months anyway and, you know, move it around and operate and then get other people to do what you want and stuff. I'm still working on that. <laughs> who, who are we really? A poem from William Stafford, a wonderful poet called Ways to Live. India, it's titled. In India, in their, their lives, they happen again and again, being people or animals. And if you live well, your next time could be even better. That's why they often look into your eyes and you know some far-off story with them and you in it, and some animal waiting over at the side. Who would want to happen just once? It's too abrupt this way, and when you're wrong, it's too late to go back. You've done it forever, and you can't have that soft look when you pass the way they do it in India. So there's this sense somehow, if we really look, at the mystery of coming into a body and having this form and sharing it with all these seemingly separate bodies around us. And it's there from when we were the smallest children. I mean, if you have the chance to go and hold a newborn baby and kind of look in the eyes of this newborn baby, like just coming from wherever we come from, it's so wonderful. Tell me a story about when I was a baby when you were a baby learning to fly, you couldn't control your lightness. We never had a moment's peace. We kept the windows closed all summer. But you were happy, and everyone said, enjoy this. He'll forget how by the time he's old enough to walk. And they were right. By the time you were old enough to walk, it was all a story we were told. When you were a baby and learning to fly, you flew back and forth between your mother and I. And so there's this returning to the temple, to meditation, whatever spiritual life we have, to come back and touch the, the, the secret beauty that Thomas Burton calls it, that we were born with. And it's not just us, but it's really there in everything. I mean, I remember going to see um, Coco. You, you know her, everybody knows who Coco is, who lived for a long time in Palo Alto and I think has moved to Hawaii like many of us would like to do. Anyway, um, and Coco's the sign, sign language speaking gorilla, and we went up to see Coco because a friend of ours uh, who speaks good sign was taking my wife and daughter and I up to see her um, and introduce us. And we got up there, and there's this little green lawn <coughs> outside where her pen was. And we walked across the green lawn, my wife and daughter and I, and they, we were introduced by our friend to Coco, Coco, hey, this is Liana and Caroline and Jack and so forth. How do you do? And then Coco signed, hello. And then she signed, pretty flowers. And I looked all around, and there was just grass and dirt around there, you know. And I shook my head. I didn't understand. And Coco looked again, pretty flowers. And then I, I looked, and I realized that my daughter was wearing a floral print dress with little flowers on it. And Coco had seen those and kind of like, nice dress, kid. Where'd you get that? You know? <laughs> and it's so amazing, because there's Coco in there looking at us, right? Or if, as I have, if you've ever swum with the dolphins, swim with the dolphins, and there's this huge, wonderful eye that looks at you. And it's like, you know, the Dalai Lama kind of <laughs> saying, cool, you know, how, how about this one? And you realize how mysterious it is just to be incarnate. And what do we do with this? Now, in our culture, usually we make our identity from what we do or our accomplishments, you know, that list of stuff that you put out. In India, when you meet somebody, they don't ask what you do. 
very much. It's just not part of the culture so much here. It's like, what do you do that defines you? In India, the most common question when you meet somebody who's new is, what god do you worship? You know, is it Shiva or Saraswati or Durga or, you know, or, or um, uh, Krishna or whoever it happens to be? Because that tells more who you are. What, what is your spirit, your soul, your being connected to? That's kind of a cool way to meet somebody, huh? What, what, are you, what are you here to worship in this world rather than what's your job, you know? <laughs> I mean, what is our true nature? Is it our job? Ancient Mayan poetry. If I were to lead you into the depths of the temple, if I were to ask you which of these bones were which king, what could you reply? You would say, I know not, for the greatest and least are co confounded in common clay, and the blackness of the tomb is the sun's womb, and the dark night shines with bright stars, and we are thus. We are all arising out of the same source and disappearing into the same source. You live in illusion, says Kalu Rinpoche, in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not remember this. And when you understand, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So we live in this illusion of separateness and as if this small sense of self and our doing and activity is who we are, but we are something so much greater than this. And part of what makes meditation so extraordinary is that to simply sit and not try to make anything happen or get anywhere or do something is to step out of our identity and our roles and the small sense of self. As Thoreau said, the soul grows by subtraction and not by addition. When we let go, when we make space, that's when the heart grows, when we understand. And here we are, we sit down in meditation to kind of quiet the mind and open the heart in whatever way, and then we see our stories. The victim, you know that one. The warrior, the workhorse, the nurturer you know, the, the great mother or the lost soul, the fatalist or the sage. I mean, we can, you know, it's like Shakespeare. What part do you want to play? It really is, you know. And then we feel the roles that have been dumped on us by society because of its expectations, the suffering of it, the, the injustice, the, the racism, and the, the in complete insanity of saying, okay, you look this way, that's going to be your role, you know. Um, the kinds of fears that are sold to us, a society currently that lives a lot from fear. Are we going to take that as a role or the, the role of the consumer? You are a consumer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we want Uncle Sam wants you <laughs> to consume, basically. That, that's what our nation has become, in a way. Ah, and then we come to meditation. Mm. Yeah, quite a good product here. And, and <laughs> what it offers us is a sacred space of non-consumption. There's nothing to do, no grade, no accomplishment, nothing to have or become. It is a sacred space to listen and remember and touch the freedom of heart or spirit that is possible in any circumstance. No matter what drama that you're in, being born or dying or gaining or losing or praise or blame or pain or pleasure, you got one of those today and tomorrow it might be different. Whatever it is, there is within us a possibility of freedom in the midst of all of that because those outer things are not who we really are. They're part of the play, the game of life. And in the stillness, we rediscover our connection to that which is silent, timeless. We're surrounded by silence. The galaxies are surrounded by intergalactic silence. And so are we. This vast stillness surrounds all the doing. And it just takes a moment 
to remember it and reconnect with it. And it's so nourishing and healing. It's, it's as if, you know, that old African story of the people who uh, put down the, the bears who put down their, the luggage they were carrying um, to let their souls catch up. You know, we're not going to finish the journey until our souls can catch up. So we begin to practice, and it's really a practice of letting go, of emptying of the perspective of wisdom. As the alchemical sage Hermes Trismegistus says, see with the eyes that can view your life as not yet begotten, and then that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are middle-aged, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave, grasp in your mind all of these times at once. And then you can begin to see with the eyes of the divine. See the whole arc of life, the dance, because time is really an illusion. There's only now, and now we can see all that there is in its own way. And so we begin to meditate and space opens, a kind of letting go, emptiness, the spaciousness of awareness itself that thoughts come and go, feelings arise and pass, and we can bow to them all. And it's not that they're easy. I mean, the forces of greed and fear and hatred and confusion and so forth are enormous forces. It's just that they're not who we really are. They may be big, but they're not in some fundamental sense. They're part of the dance of life. But when we sit and open and listen, look with the eyes and heart of a Buddha, something else happens. The armor of the body starts to loosen, all the stuff that we hold inside. You know, the unfinished business of the heart, the tears come because we've been too busy running around to grieve our losses and bow to them and let go. General Norman Schwarzkopf said, I don't trust a man who can't cry. Thank you, General. You know? <laughs> I mean, there's something important about that. And so we allow the small sense of self, the body of fear, to be bowed to and respected and honored. It's so precious that we have this day in this form. And in doing so, it opens. It starts to release. It heals. It allows. And the heart starts to open. The sorrows and creativity and grudges and longings and excitement and expressions and all these different things, our love come and go, bow to all that too, yes. And we become the space that senses our life coming and going, all of it. The mind quiets, the heart opens in its own way. And we see the places that we get caught, entangled. I mean, this is the basic Buddhist teaching. There's suffering when we get entangled, and there's the freedom, the joy of life when we let go. And even now, we sit this evening, are you listening? And you know the places that, you know, cause the suffering now, the clinging, the fear, the confusion. And underneath, you also can probably equally well sense the possibility of release and letting go the freedom of it. This freedom is your birthright. It is always with us. It is always possible. Who are we really? Are we these limited roles? Or do we know and trust and live in this freedom? You remember the passage from the Ojibwe Indians. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And so we sit, and after some initial quieting, the breath starts to breathe itself, the thought storms come and go, all the stories tell themselves, and then there's a kind of opening. We begin to trust the space of awareness itself, of compassion and the great heart of a Buddha within ourselves, to allow the praise and blame and gain and loss, the mystery of life, just to see it. Isn't it amazing? Because it's not very much in our control. I mean, you have things to do and tend to, but the big things, 
who you end up falling in love with or falling out of love with, you know, what happens to your body, probably where you end up living and certainly where you were born and what your family was like and various other things like that, you really don't have much say about, do you? They happen. And so there comes a sense that we are living out this pattern of mystery. A friend of mine, I remember, who's a Buddhist teacher, told me about first going to the Himalayas. And she was traveling around India just kind of as a tourist. And then she went up in the mountains and met this Tibetan Lama. And he said, you must come for our fire puja that we're doing. And so she decided to kind of follow this Lama. And they went back into this valley in the Himalayas. And there were about a dozen old lamas in a huge fire. And they were saying mantras and pouring butter on the flames. And you know there were the snowy peaks behind them. And around them, some of the animals from the forest had come. All these birds and creatures had come out. And she said, I walked in this glade, and there was the smoke pouring, and the chanting, and the huge bonfire, and the butter poured on it, and these animals looking along with the lamas. And I felt that I had walked into an ancient world that was so much more connected with what was true than anything I'd seen in my life. And I just bowed down to this lama, and I said, teach me something. Teach me. But it's not just in Tibet. I mean, it is every time a bird sings. It doesn't have to be in the Himalayas. Someone left here this beautiful poem from Wendell Berry about the yellow-throated warbler, the highest remote voice singing in the top of the tallest sycamores. You know, all, he, he, he was too close, and then he landed on the railing of my porch. He was too close to see with binoculars. Only the naked eye could take him in, a bird more beautiful than every picture of himself, more beautiful than any human mind, so small and inexact, could ever hope to remember. My mind became beautiful by the sight of him. And it's here, it is, it's around us, the, the people around us, even when they're in bad moods. I mean, it's kind of like the wrathful deities at the temple. You know, you go through the gates of the temple and there's always these guardian demons and stuff like that. So sometimes you live with them. That's okay, <laughs> you know, for a time. You bow to them, you know, thank you. For Meditation opens us to this mystery and to the freedom beneath it all. The mystery of identity, because we take this small sense of self, you know, and I had asparagus for dinner, right? Does that make me asparagus, right? <laughs> and I had bread, so, you know, here's wheat from Argentina, and I had some cheese, probably French cheese, so now I'm French, partly. I know that's not politically correct, <laughs> but I am, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's so remarkable that our life is so intertwined with all of life. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, when you can see with the eyes of a poet, this piece of paper has the trees that made it, and the rain, the rain clouds that watered the forest, and the logger who cut the tree down, and the logger's wife who made his lunch that day, and, you know, the bologna that was in his sandwich, and, and the worms that aerated the soil under that particular fir tree that was cut, and the history of a hundred million years of fir trees, all of that, and the engines that people have designed to, you know, work chainsaws, and the history of petroleum that works in that, and, and every other mystery all in this piece of paper because everything is what we are. Seeing this, we are nothing and being nothing. We are a part of this fabric of everything. And when we see with the eyes of a poet, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, then we realize that the small sense of self, what we get so frightened about, the, how we get caught in our small story, is not the whole game. Whatever you think you are, says Nisargadot, my teacher, you take it to be true. You identify with everything so easily. I'm this or I'm that. The habit of imagining yourself as perceivable or describable, giving yourself a role, is so strong with you. I find this impossible. The understanding that I am not this or that is the ground of my being. Wisdom says I am nothing. 
Love says, I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. So when you sit in meditation, or as I've said recently, if you look in the mirror and you look at your body, it's really evident, you know, because you kind of look down at your body and you think, well, this is mine. You're sort of used to looking at your hands and feet and the shape, you know, your belly and whatever. Um, but you look in the mirror and it's weird. It's a strange thing because you know it's sort of supposed to be you, right? It's aged, <laughs> of course. But then there's some part of you that knows it's not really who I am because it gets older and the part that's watching and seeing it isn't really getting older. I mean, I don't just mean that you're still immature. I might mean that, but <laughs> I mean, you know, something more than that. That time exists within the physical world, but not for the mind, not for awareness itself. Who we are, the space of awareness is outside of time. It is unborn and undying. And in a moment in meditation, when we begin to let go and rest and trust in the space of awareness itself, the space of being and consciousness, then it's as if in the movie theater the, the appearances come and go. And there's a place to relax and say, oh, this is interesting, isn't it? Oh, this is a difficult one. This is a beautiful one. This is the way life unfolds for us there comes a kind of trust, a trusting heart. And one great Zen master said that if you want to understand the enlightened mind or the enlightened heart, enlightenment is one with the trusting mind. Some great trust, O nobly born, trust in this life that we've been given that so much is not in our control. And it doesn't mean that we don't have a task to do, that each of us doesn't have gifts to bring to the world and things to care for and injustices to tend to and stop. Um, that's part of the dance that we've been given. But underneath it all, we're just here for a little while in one form, and then it will change. And you see it, as I do in meditation retreat so often, because people will come to sit for a week or 10 days or a month or whatever, and we'll talk in the meditation interviews, and there'll be, as they sit, the uprising of the particular drama of the, that year or their time. And a man will come in and say, I'm in the midst of this very painful divorce. And not only that, but it feels like I'm thrown back into the divorce of my own parents. It recreates all the trauma when he was four years old and his parents got divorced and all the suffering and, and, and fear and abandonment and that. Or, you know, another man will come in and talk about his mother's Alzheimer's. He's taking care of her and how scary that is and how difficult because he's starting to not be able to remember things so well either. You know, or the veteran who comes in and talks about what happened during the war and it, wasn't so much being shot at that he remembers. It's shooting at people. You know, oh, he came in and he said, you know, we ended up shooting one of our officers um, because he was um, so cruel and shooting so many people that didn't need to be killed and we didn't know what else to do. You know, amazing story to hear. And the woman who comes in and says, I lost my business, and has this whole story, or the person who was abused, and it seems like they're lost in it. And we do get lost at certain time. But there's some other place that knows, that came to this retreat, that has this conversation, that lives in a different reality. Simone Weil, a Christian mystic who writes, the problem is not that the soul should believe that there is no bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And in some way it seems that we forget who we are, but something under there knows and brings us back, and it always does. And they tell the stories, and I, we sit together, and I weep, and they weep, or whatever the emotion is, the anger, the fear, the outrage, the longing, the love, whatever comes in the story with it. 
And after a time, the story is told, and then we sit and say, well, that's quite a story, isn't it? And here we are. And that was quite a thing to live through, a terrible thing, or a difficult thing, or a tragic thing, or whatever it happened to be. And then there's this elaboration, well, but I told it, but no, I'm still really in it, you know, and this is, and I say, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting that you still think that you're in it, and you feel that you're in it, and I can respect that. Um, and then there's the sense of, well, I am, you know, I'm the one that's injured, I'm the victim, I'm the this and that. I say, well, that happened, perhaps, in the past in this way. And I say, and then just look in somebody's eyes and say, um, is it here now? Well, it feels like it. The feelings are here. The story's here. But is it actually here now? And then an even deeper question, is this who you really are? The victim or the, you know, whatever, the abandoned one or the lonely one and so forth. Is this really who you are? Tell me that. Say, I'm, I'm really I am. I am the victim. Tell me that. And sometimes they'll tell me that. Say, say it again a couple more times. It gets really embarrassing to say it. <laughs> Because something in there can't say it very long. Because it's sort of like, well, you know, I mean, I'm really loyal to this story. <laughs> but actually, something in us knows that that's not the whole game. And there is this tremendous freedom that starts to come in a moment when we look. Don't introduce me to him, said Charles Lamb when a friend offered to present a man whom Lamb had for a long time disliked by hearsay. I want to go on hating him, and I can't do that to a man I know. <laughs> and so part of what meditation does is it begins to shine the light of truth on the stories and roles that we take. And yes, there are these roles, and yes, there is the, the, the suffering, and it's very genuine and needs to be respected. But we're so much more than our suffering. Zen Master Isa, who writes, in these latter-day degenerate times, that's the first sentence of his little haiku. I want you to get this. In these latter-day degenerate, this was like in Kyoto, I don't know, maybe a thousand years ago. In these, in these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. So we sit and meditate to touch, to quiet the mind, open the heart, touch into that reality which is always with us, that's timeless and open and free. Suzuki Roshi calls it beginner's mind. <coughs> the goal of practice is to keep your beginner's mind, to see the mystery that nothing can be repeated and everything is born anew. an old Russian wedding poem about this bride who's trying to look sorry about leaving home. The bride comes and sits in the kitchen, her last long hour beguiling. She looks so sad, so sad, in secret she is smiling. There's some part of us also that's interested in adventure. I mean, even if we're frightening and kind of holding on, you know, I think Annie Lamott said, most of the things that I let go of have claw marks in them, right? <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, we let go, and we say, okay, wow, what is going to come next? And we know that there's going to be something next. Wow, that was incredible. We know it from near-death experiences, from accidents, from all these kind of stories that we've heard and experienced in our own way, that there's this fear and letting go of the small way we've held our life, and then something new always happens. I mean, I see it when I go into San Quentin, and I meet these men, some of whom have done terrible things, you know, and I'll sit down with a man, and he'll say, when I was 18 or 19, you know, I did some really bad things, killed people, did, you know. Um, and I'm looking at this man and talking to him, and now he's 46 years old, and he's been in, you know, for 25 years or something like that. And he's such a different human being. He's think, I think about that young, you know, confused, drugged out, um, 
tremendously traumatized and hurt and you know young person who was victimized themselves in all kinds of ways and did that and I look at this man who's got such a heart and says that that person isn't who I am anymore and it's so obviously true that this is a, a different and and in many cases great-hearted human being who suffered enormously and learned from it now it's important in all of this talking about not taking a solid identity not to confuse no self with low self-esteem a kind of or in a meaninglessness or existential emptiness there isn't a separate self that teaches you know the Buddhist teaching of selflessness one of my teachers in Sri Lanka said you know tell me what is the essence of Buddhist teachings this old wonderful old monk and I said the essence of the Buddhist teaching is selflessness that the small sense of self we think we are is not the reality and he looked at me and he just laughed and he said no self no problem no <laughs> self no problem or Zhuang Su wonderful Taoist sage who writes if a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff even though he be a bad-tempered man he will not become very angry but if he sees a man in the boat he will shout at him to steer clear and if the shout is not heard he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing and all because there's somebody in the boat yet if the boat were empty he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. So it's a kind of spaciousness and open heart, an emptiness of selfishness, of small sense of self, a connectedness. As I was starting to say, it's important not to confuse this openness of identity, this selflessness, not to confuse no self with low self-esteem. I remember somebody coming on a retreat years ago, just beginning to teach, and this woman came on a retreat and she said, I've been with this Buddhist teacher from I won't wherever someplace, you know, for a while, and I am experiencing the selflessness of all things. And I looked at her and she said, and when I walk, I really feel it, and when I sit. And, what I, and we had this conversation and I said, would you do walking meditation for me? I just want to see how you walk. And she walked and she sat back down. And what I experienced was a kind of unkept, unkempt person who was pretty much depressed, right? And they were calling their depression and lack of connection with the world emptiness. But it really was an identity. And it was the identity of being frightened and depressed. You know that kind of identity. Some of you do. I'm sure you do. We have all had that state. So, so her sense of no self was depression and not being alive. In true emptiness, in true openness, which comes again as we sit, we all know it, we can sort of feel this relaxation and, and spaciousness, there is instead strength, vitality, openness, well-being, a kind of aliveness, a spontaneity. I mean, the great masters that I've been with are more alive than anybody else that I know. Also more eccentric in many cases. One Sufi master who I admire a lot said, you also become sexier as you become emptier. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I like the sound of it, I have to say. And I think he meant it in the big sense of that. Um, my good friend Jack Engler, who's a Vipassana teacher and author of books on consciousness and so forth, was a teaching psychology at Harvard. For a time before doing Vipassana practice, he was a novice with Thomas Merton in Gethsemane Abbey in, in uh, Kentucky. And I asked him about Merton. He spent a year under Merton as Merton was his novice master. And I said, what was Thomas Merton like? And Jack looked at me and he said, he was the sexiest man I ever met, <laughs> which is a really interesting description. He was more alive in every way than anyone that I'd met to that point. So I think that's the, me that's the way that it's meant. For whoever it happens to be, emptiness isn't a lack of life. When we become, there's this paradox, when we become open and empty 
and let go of the small sense of self, the identification with role and fear and so forth, and can get born again this morning, this person, this relationship, this birth, this death, this change of circumstance, we become more ourselves. We become more full. Our life becomes more precious each day. May Sarton, she writes, Now I become myself. It's taken time, years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you will be dead before what? Before you reach the morning? Before the end of the poem is clear? Or love safe in a walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and destiny. Oh, in this single hour, I live all of myself and do not move. And I, the pursued who madly ran, stand still and stop the sun. And such a beautiful expression of the journey of coming back to one's own life. When we become still, it's not trying to be something but the moments of trusting, of the trusting heart. You know this. What's left is not imitation or artificial. It is as natural as the Tao, as resilient, as flexible. Resilient as water, as forgiving as the earth. Some years ago, my old Aunt Ellen, who I'm going to go visit next week, who's 96 or 97 years old, she's an artist, when she paints now, it shakes a lot, her hand, but she still tries to paint. It's more like Impressionism now, or whatever. <laughs> Tease her about it. But um, she lived in Miami, not far from the Miami Zoo, which is a fantastic one of the great zoos of America. And I'm a little ambivalent about zoos for the, for the animals. But I, on the other hand, I see them as kind of ambassadors of their species to help us kind of stay connected. Anyway, where there was that huge hurricane, Hurricane Andrew, Force 5 hurricane that swept through, completely demolished her house and that whole area, and the zoo came through. And um, when, I went, when we went back to visit and see the wreckage, or not that long afterward, and talking to people there, the zoo had a, um, what is the wind measure called? An anemometer? Um, had an anemometer that measured the wind of the hurricane up to 214 miles an hour and then blew off. And so they don't know how high it was, but it was really remarkable. And everything got leveled, really, pretty much. And the zookeepers were terrified for what happened to all their favorite animals. First of all, the birds were quite happy. They just left, right? <laughs> the, the thing of the big aviary just blew off, and they said, okay, time to go to the Caribbean, you know? This is, they've been waiting for this. But they were worried about the bears and the big cats and the, you know, the monkeys and all these other things. And they were, you know, now there are going to be wild animals everywhere and that they were going to be also in trouble. They went back to the zoo and what was remarkable is that almost all the animals were there. And they were all hunkered down under the rubble and the pushed over fences and things like that. And when the zookeepers came with food, little eyes peeked out. They were waiting for, you know, waiting for dinner basically. And they knew, instinctively, they knew what to do, even in such a huge, amazing hurricane. And they kind of, okay, it's, it's time to, to, to duck, right? You know, to get down. And they did. And then, then the hurricane passed, and it was time for, you know, supper or whatever. <laughs> there is a kind of resiliency in us as human beings, which you can see and also becomes trustworthy when we let go of the small sense of self and become the witness to all things. There's, there's the state of awareness that is the witnessing of life that is spacious and open and trustworthy. And what comes in it then is not self-centeredness, but connectedness, compassion, and a, and a natural way of responding, an inner knowing, the one who knows, to whatever the circumstance and a caring, because it's not them and me, it's us. It's us. We are appearing in all these different forms, but it's just us. It's family. So I have a friend 
named Milton Friedman, who used to come here to Monday night sittings some years ago. And Milton Friedman, this particular Milton Friedman, was a speechwriter in Washington. He wrote speeches for President Carter he wrote in the White House. He wrote speeches for a couple of the um, senior senators in the Senate. He's not the same Milton Friedman as the Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago, although it, they got confused a couple of times. And he said, in fact, he tells this great story. He was working one day in the White House in the 70s when inflation had hit its peak under Carter's presidency. There was, you know, 19 or 20 percent inflation. Some of you may remember that who are old like me. Anyway, and um, he got a call one day from Milton Friedman and he picked up the phone and it turned out it was, um, he says, is this Milton Friedman? He said, yes it is. And then the man introduced him, I am so and so and I am the manager of the portfolio of the assets for the um, uh, church, for the Catholic Church in the United States, and there's this high inflation and things not going well in the economy, and I want to get a little bit of advice from you on where you think we should put our money. <laughs> and so he listened to this question, paused for a moment, and then he said, um, have you thought about giving it to the poor? <laughs> <laughs> and there was a kind of shock at the other end of the phone. And then the man said, is this the real Milton Friedman? <laughs> to which my friend Milton replied, is this the real church? <laughs> Spirituality is not like investing. You know, there's no enlightened retirement. You get some kind of plan. Um, it is really always new. And the freedom we have, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, that strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an enlightened person. There is only moments of enlightenment, one after another. Because if there's somebody to be enlightened, then that's, you've missed it. It's not about somebody claiming enlightenment. It is the freedom that is available to us moment by moment. Less who I am getting and becoming and possessing where I'm going and more the sense of this great trusting heart, that the heart can expand, and that within you this great heart of compassion, the great heart of a Buddha, can see us all together. As it says in one of the Buddhist texts, the final realization, now you know how to leave every thought and passion entirely alone, neither cutting it off nor falling under its spell. So things come and go, joys and sorrows. And from this emptiness, there is now born in you exceeding compassion for all the living creatures who do not realize this freedom of mind. You will spend your life working for the sake of these others, and yet your meditation has now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from yourself. It's just us together. And so there comes from this an ability to be gracious, to be at ease, to bless, and even when you're not gracious, because we're not always going to be gracious. I mean, there are moments when, you know, I saw Thich Nhat Hanh get irritated and angry about something, and I was so relieved. <laughs> so it's like, okay, if it happens to Thich Nhat Hanh, I, I don't feel so bad, right? You know, I mean, because he's wonderful, he's this good, but it's like, okay. But there's some part of you which says, okay, this is just what happens. Irritation happens sometimes. Fear arises too, but it's not who we really are. Sylvia Borstein tells this story when she was teaching in New York City of a, of a student of hers, of a practitioner who came and said he was out um, one evening in uh, just um, early evening on a kind of side street in one of the neighborhoods um, and a mugger came up to him, kind of wild-looking guy with a, with a gun who he pulled, and this guy, he said he, she said he, he had kind of dirty blonde hair and a kind of crazed look in his, in his face like he was on something, and he said, you know, give me your money. And so this guy, who was a practitioner, um, took out his wallet, I mean anybody would, and started to give him his money, gave him, you know, all a few hundred dollars said, give me more, you know, and okay, gave him his credit cards and whatever. Um, and the guy said, I'm going to shoot you. And the 
the man said, wait, wait, I have more to give you. Let me take off my watch, you know, here, this, and, you know, I'm going to shoot you. And I have this other thing. And so kept kept stringing him along, giving him, finally, the guy was kind of crazy. I'm going to shoot you. And he just looked at me and said, you don't have to shoot me. You did really good. You got a really good watch. (laughs) You got $700. You got credit card. You did credit cards. You did really good. And the guy looking said, really good? You did really good. It's okay. You don't have to shoot me. You did really good. Oh, I did really good. Thank you. And he put his gun away and he turned around. I mean, and, and it's painful and it's also somehow there's something important in the story because we're waiting for that in some way. You have done really good. <laughs> Not just muggers, you know. That you have done really good. Living this far in your incarnation, I bow to you. It's beautiful. And now it's time to dance, to enjoy, to make space, to let go of the spheres and the small sense of self, and live so that you can offer your blessings, even to people that give trouble to you, like this last story, even in the places that are difficult. When we open, when we rest in the knowing, there comes an ability to bless, to be compassionate, to live through the joys and sorrows and the birth and death that comes to us, that comes to each one of us. Hmm. Okay, last poem, story, what should I read? A story, I could read a sweet poem, but I'm gonna read a story instead from Rumi. Three devout men of different religions fall in together by chance traveling. They stop at a caravanserai where the host brings as a gift a a great sweet dessert, some taste of God's nearness on the tongue. This is how people out in the lands of the Bedouins serve strangers. Isn't that a lovely thing? You bring out the sweetest thing to your guest. and, And it's true, there's such graciousness and beauty in the Muslim culture when you go and travel um, as a stranger in those villages. The Jew and the Christian are already full, but the Muslim has been fasting all day. It's Ramadan. So the first two say, let's save it for tomorrow. And the one says, no, let's save self-denial for tomorrow and have it tonight. (laughs) And they discuss it together, but finally he agrees, all right, I'll do it your way. They refrain from tasting. They sleep. And then they wake and dress themselves and begin their morning devotions. Christian, Jew, Muslim, shaman, Zoroastrian, stone, ground, mountain, river, each has its secret way of being with the mystery, unique and not to be judged. Every being has their unique way not to be judged. And this subject never ends. After devotions, the three friends in a grand morning mood Let's tell what dreams we had last night, and whoever had the deepest dream gets the sweets. Agreed. The Jewish man begins the wanderings of his night soul. Moses met me on the road. I followed him to Sinai, an opening door, light within light. Mount Sinai and Moses and I merged in an exploding splendor, the unity of the prophets. This was a true dream. Many Jews have such. Then the Christian sighs and smiles. Oh, Jesus took me in his arms to the fourth heaven, a pure, vast region filled with holiness. Words cannot say. His dream also deep. The Muslim shakes his head. Muhammad came and told me where you two had gone. (laughs) You wretch, he went on. You've been left behind. You may as well have, get up and have something to eat. How about the halava? <laughs> Muhammad said that. How could I disobey such glory, said the Muslim. Would you not do as Moses or Jesus suggested? You're right, they say. Yours is the truest dream because it had immediate effect in your waking life. What matters is not the dream alone, but how quickly and fully you listen to what your spirit directs you to do. So let's sit for a moment. (laughs) 